picture that you see up on the screen is one that was taken of the interior of the Soho House in Los Angeles. It's one of the most exclusive clubs in that city. And in order to become a member, an insider at the Soho House, you got to do even more than just give them a big old annual sum of money. You actually first need to have not one, but two present members of the Soho House as sponsors, people who are like vouching for your admission into the club. Then you also have to go through a pretty strenuous application process, a vetting process, one that even includes writing an essay. Sounds like you're entering college or something. Writing an essay, though, explaining why you would be such a benefit to that club and to the other members there. And then, of course, on top of that, they do also want that hefty annual fee. Do all of those things, though, meet all these criteria, go through that process, and you will be deemed worthy of becoming an insider, a member of the Soho House. But it isn't just fancy clubs that have these various criteria in order to gain entrance or to keep uh, an insider status, really all human organizations and structures have these kinds of things, some of them to a greater degree and some to a lesser, but there are a lot of expectations for us wherever we might find ourselves, right? In a fancy club, yeah, you might have to go through a screening process and pay a lot of money, but even in something like a family, there are certain expectations and criteria that you're supposed to meet, right? Yes, you are born into a family, but as you grow up, you're expected to do things like chores when you're younger. When you're older and people start to spread out, you're still expected in order to remain a true insider in that family, you're expected to do things like keep in touch with people, maybe go to a family reunion every now and then, and especially, I would say, conduct your life in a way that brings your family honor according to the way that they see it. In high school, maybe some of you remember this, maybe some of you are going through this right now. If you want to be on a sports team, you don't just show up for practice the first day of the season. No, you need to put in hard work and practice even beforehand so that when you are in tryouts, you're able to make the cut and gain that insider status onto the team. Even something like Costco has these sorts of requirements for people, right? Not very difficult to meet them, but you put your $55 or whatever it is onto the counter, you let them take your picture and give them your address and phone number, and that's how you are deemed worthy of becoming a member of Costco. All of these human organizations and structures, though, what do they really require? They require that you are putting something up, right? That you are bringing something to the table that is of worth and value, something of yourself. If you can't or if you don't, then you will not be an insider, but an outsider. Outside the club, ostracized perhaps from the family watching the game from the bleachers instead of the bench, stopped by those super threatening security guards at the front doors of the Costco, right? There are insiders, and there are outsiders. And the same thing is true with God. The Bible is very clear that when it comes to God, there are insiders and there are also outsiders. 
Jesus himself in Matthew 25 is speaking about what will happen when he comes back a second time in judgment. And he says about himself, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Separating them into insiders and outsiders. And then in Revelation, after that judgment happens, we have a little bit of a glimpse of what, what, what comes next. And here's what Revelation 22 tells us. Blessed are those who go through the gates into the city, the insiders. However, outside are the dogs. And there are even warnings about insiders disqualifying themselves and becoming outsiders again. Also in Revelation, God speaks some pretty strong words to the Christian congregation in the ancient city of Laodicea. It says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. There are insiders and there are outsiders with God. The question is, what makes a person an insider? Do you become an insider by going through a nine-week Discipleship 101 class and then filling out the proper paperwork to become a member at your local Christian congregation? Do you become an insider by going to church X percentage of the Sundays of the weekends that you are alive on planet Earth or by following a certain percentage of God's commands? Or do you perhaps become an insider simply by acknowledging the existence of some higher power regardless of the name, regardless of who that higher power calls itself. Or perhaps it's just by being a decent, kind person, an upstanding citizen toward the people around you. What makes a person an insider with God? Well, in our encounter with Jesus today, we are going to see that becoming an insider with God occurs in a radically different way than all of these different human organizations and structures do it. Jesus totally turns this idea on its head to show us a brand new way altogether, one that people like you and me would never imagine or even conceive of. Now, the verses that we are studying today take place at what is likely the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity in Israel. Crowds were always, always pressing around him. In fact, the story that we're going to read takes place between two other stories that we've given titles to called the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Okay, people were swarming around Jesus constantly demanding his attention. And so it became very difficult for him to devote quiet time to the teaching of his disciples, his inner circle of followers. And so Jesus here actually takes his disciples on a rare trip outside the borders of Israel for the purpose of training them so that they will be equipped to carry on the ministry when he is no longer present with them. So today we're going to be turning to Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. Leaving that place, so he's leaving a place called Genezareth. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, a trip of depending on where exactly he went, around 35 to 50 miles. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, those of you who know your Bible history will also be aware that the Canaanites were like the Old Testament enemies of Israel. 
In fact, when God was leading Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, he told them to destroy or drive out all of the godless, violent, highly immoral people of that land, the people called the Canaanites. Now, in their sin, Israel did not live up to the uh, full expectations of God in this, and so some of them remained. This woman, then, is a descendant of those Canaanites. And even at this time, the people that lived in that region were, by and large, blatant unbelievers and idolaters. And the Jewish people would have looked down on them as such. In fact, they even had a word for people like this Canaanite woman. It was the word kuon, which means dog. Not like a nice little friendly dog that you might have running around your house. This is a word for a wild, mangy, filthy, vicious creature. In fact, the Jews considered such people to be so unspiritual that simply by being in the presence of one of them, you could become ceremonially unclean. This Canaanite woman, by the Jewish way of reckoning things, was an outsider. She was not a part of God's chosen people. She was not a part of God's family. And yet here she is, begging Jesus to heal her daughter. Now, what happens next is one of those instances that maybe causes us to scratch our heads a little bit, because here's how Jesus reacts. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Jesus seems kind of cold here, doesn't he? And yet he is using the opportunity to expose the sinful predispositions and prejudices of his own disciples. People who, like the rest of their Jewish brothers and sisters, had what we might call a cultural superiority complex. This mindset that says, we're the insiders. We are the descendants of Abraham, the, our forefather that God spoke to in the Old Testament. We are the insiders who were given the law of God at Mount Sinai through his servant Moses. We're God's people. We're worthy of him. She's not. But can I ask, is that ever you? Is that attitude ever your attitude as you encounter the people around you, your neighbors, coworkers, maybe even sometimes people that you see sitting in these pews? That mindset that almost seems to make me into the one that, that, that gets to decide who is worthy of being an insider and who must remain on the outs with God? Almost deciding like who Jesus is and isn't for who God is about. For example, if you've ever held a grudge against anyone, what are you essentially saying? I'm a person who sins in ways that should be forgiven. 
And they're a person who sins in ways that should not be forgiven. When we despise people for their immoral conduct, looking down on them for, for bad decisions maybe that, they, that they've made, maybe even in the very distant past, what's the attitude behind that? I'm more worthy of God than that kind of person. Whenever we sit up on our moral perch lamenting the culture and the world around us that lives like hell instead of getting out there and doing what we can to save it, what's the attitude that lives behind it? It's this idea that God is, for, God is not for those kinds of people. God is for me kinds of people. People who go to church as often as me. People who haven't disobeyed the commands that I haven't disobeyed. People who slap that Jesus fish logo thingy on the back bumper of their car like I have on the back bumper of my car. It's very easy to slip into the mindset that the, the, the Jewish people of Jesus' day and even that his disciples had that God is only for certain kinds of people, and the other ones must remain on the outs. He is for me kinds of people, not for those kinds of people. And so it's really no wonder, sometimes, uh, when those who are outside the church, when those who do not have the faith that we have kind of look in on us and, and view us as these judgmental, condescending, and and arrogant people, because the reality is that we very frequently have given them fodder to think exactly that. Maybe some of you are familiar with this uh, pretty popular quote that's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. It says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Of course, Gandhi also said, half my quotes on Pinterest are fake. And so I should, I should let you know that Gandhi, there's no evidence that he actually ever said that former quote. And yet, what's the takeaway? Well, first, if you ever want somebody to believe you, just tell them Gandhi said it, and you're good to go. More importantly, though, why are, why are quotes misattributed to somebody who's considered authoritative like Gandhi? It's because there is a large sentiment in our world among people who do not believe in Jesus and are not, do not call themselves Christians. There's a sentiment that says something like this. Well, if that's how Christians behave, if that's what Christ's followers look like, why would I want anything to do with Christ himself? Now, fortunately, this Canaanite woman does not make the mistake that so many outsiders do make. She does not judge Jesus based on how his followers can sometimes act. Instead, she approaches Jesus knowing who he is and who he has come to be. And so the encounter continues. Jesus answered, and here he's answering what his disciples had said, right? They said, send her away. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Well, if Jesus seemed cold before, he certainly sounds cold now, doesn't he? And while it's worth noting that he uses a different term for the word dog here, one that does mean something more like a house pet, it still doesn't sound exactly nice, does it? 
Remember, though, what was Jesus' purpose in taking this little trip away from all the crowds? It was to teach his disciples. And now he has a wonderful opportunity, and he is making use of that opportunity, not only to show kindness to this woman, but also to teach his disciples an important lesson. He is going to use this encounter with her to shatter their predispositions and preconceptions about what it means to be an insider and an outsider with God. Let's finish the verses. I love this. She just comes right back at him. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, what Jesus says here is shocking. Considering that just one chapter earlier in Matthew, he looked Peter in the face, Peter, the chief of the 12 disciples, and called him a man of little faith. And here he calls this Canaanite woman, whom they would have regarded as an outsider, a dog. He says that she is someone of great faith. Only two times in the Gospels does Jesus draw like drop, jaw like drop in amazement over the bigness of somebody's faith. And both times, it's somebody who is not an Israelite. You see, this woman, despite what those disciples might have thought about her, shows that she was, in fact, an insider. And yet it was not because of anything that she brought to the table. I want to look back at her initial plea to Jesus here when she says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. There are two big takeaways for us here today. First, we're going to focus on that little plea, have mercy. And I think it's very interesting here, too, that she does this right after invoking the name of David, because David in the Bible is like the man of mercy. And I don't mean that he shows mercy all the time. It's that David is constantly pleading for mercy from God. In fact, David, that one man, is responsible for about 20% of all the uses of the word mercy that we have in Scripture. What is mercy? Mercy is a plea for favor and forgiveness from somebody who has the power the right, and the cause to do the exact opposite. This woman understands, just as David understood so well, that she had absolutely nothing in her own hands to bring to the table of God's favor and mercy. She was approaching him empty-handed with this plea, have mercy on me. The Jews thought that they were insiders because of their DNA. And yet what had Jesus in verse 24 just called them to? He called them lost. The lost sheep of Israel. And here's what you and me, what that Canaanite woman already had, what everybody needs to come to terms with. It's our first key point here. It's that by nature we are all outsiders before God. Because of our sin, because of our many rebellions against who God is and what he has commanded us, because of all of our self-glorification to the exclusion of glorifying God, 
We are all outsiders. We all deserve to be outside of his light, outside of his presence, and in the darkness. And until we come to this understanding that even now, even today, there is nothing that we can bring that is worthy of ourselves to the table of God's grace and mercy. Until we understand that, the judgmental, condescending, and holier-than-thou attitudes will persist. That Canaanite woman, the disciples, you and me, we are all, so to speak, by nature, on a completely level playing field. We're outsiders. And yet, earlier I said this woman showed that she was, in fact, an insider. Why? I want to look back at that plea. Specifically, at that little term, it's really a term, son of David. See, this was an Old Testament name that they used for the Messiah, the Messiah that, that, that they were looking forward to, the Messiah, the Savior, who would come and rescue the people. This woman knew who Jesus was. She knew that he was the Savior, and not just of the Jewish people, but that he was her Savior as well. She came to him because she knew who he was, and she knew that he had the power to end her suffering. Now, at this point, you might say, well, don't you mean her daughter's suffering? Well, yes, certainly her daughter was suffering. She was the one who was afflicted by these demons, and yet she was suffering right along with her daughter. Maybe I can explain it by showing you this picture. <laughs> that little girl up there with the pink blankie on her head and the pink cast on her leg. For those of you who might not know, that's my daughter Jane. I took this a little over a year ago. She was just running across a trampoline in our backyard and just kind of a freak accident. Her bone, the bone in her leg cracked when she was doing that. And I got to tell you, in the couple of days and nights following that, that was one miserable girl. She was in pain. She was uncomfortable. She was suffering. And yet she was not the only one. Her parents were suffering right there along with her. And I don't mean in the fact that we weren't sleeping very well. Parents, you get this. When your kid suffers, you might not be feeling the exact pain or illness that they are feeling, but you suffer right along with them, don't you? And when their suffering is very great, there are times when you would even, if you could, trade places with them in order to bring their suffering to an end. But here that Canaanite woman was in a position where she was utterly powerless to help her daughter in every way except for one. To seek out the power of the one who was far greater than she. She put her faith in Jesus, and her faith was well-placed. Jesus healed her daughter, ended that little girl's suffering, and in doing so, also ended that woman's suffering. Because that's who Jesus is. He is the one who heals the suffering of the outsiders. Now, when we look at our world, it is very easy to place the suffering around us, isn't it? There is so much suffering in this creation, in this world that we live in, suffering that is often even caused by the sin of those who are outsiders before God by nature, people that are sinful just like you and me. 
And I'm not just talking about the big news items like the school shootings and the war in Ukraine. This suffering is all over the place. We see it in the heartache that is caused by the spiteful words traded between spouses. We see it in the frustration of parents in their rebellious and disobedient kids. We see it in just the brokenness of nature at the tear-soaked gravesite of a loved one. This suffering is everywhere, filling us with pain and worry and anxiety and fear and sometimes all of these things all at once. And like any good parent, Jesus loves his suffering people. Loves them so much he'd even trade places with them. Whereas you and I are powerless to trade places with one of our sick or suffering kids, though. Jesus absolutely has the power to step in and do that. And so he left his father's presence in the throne room of heaven to become a man on this earth. He lived that worthy life before his father in every way as you and I had not. And then even though he was the only one worthy of being called an insider before God, he willingly made himself the outsider so that he could suffer the punishment of the outsiders, of people who were as unworthy of the presence of God as you and me. He became the outsider who was misunderstood by his friends and his family and just about everyone, the outsider who was so hated by his own countrymen that they schemed to execute him in the worst way that they could. And there on that cross, he even took the fiery arrows of hell into himself as he became the outsider forsaken by his father, bearing on his shoulders the guilt and the punishment of an entire world of outsiders like you and me. Brothers and sisters, understand that we are not insiders, that nobody is an insider because of your church attendance record or because of the commandments that you have kept. We are not, outside, we are not insiders because of some arbitrary label or something that was kind of handed down by our grandparents or our parents. No, we are insiders with God, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is, because he is the insider who trades places with the outsiders. And when he calls outsiders like us to faith, when we come to trust in him as our savior from sin, we receive a whole lot more even than the healing of our bodies. We receive even more than that Canaanite woman and her daughter received on that day. We receive the healing of our souls, the forgiveness of all and every sin. And with that forgiveness, citizenship, true belonging inside of God's kingdom. And when we understand that whole story, that we are outsiders who have been made into insiders by nothing other than the blood of Jesus, it will finally put to rest the old attitudes, the judgmental, condescending attitudes as we are filled with the love of Christ himself and the service of Christ himself as we seek the outsiders that they too might have the faith that we have, that they too might come to know and trust in Jesus as their Savior, as the only one 
who brings outsiders into the very family of God. Amen. Thank you.